California is going to have to ration water. You know why? Because they send millions of gallons of water out to the Pacific because they want to take care of certain little tiny fish that aren't doing very well without water, to be honest with you. What the hell is he talking about? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Halenville, New York, WLPP. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show. It's based at nicolesandler.com, and you're welcome to go explore the site, listen to back episodes anytime. There's no paywall there, so enjoy. Um, We got a busy show for you today. It seems like uh, (laughs) every day in 2020 packs in about a month's worth of news. So there's a lot of it to get to. And we have a great guest for you today as well. I can't help but notice about Donald Trump that he really likes the world's strong men, authoritarian figures, dictators, you know, the worst of the worst. That's who he aspires to be. And that's not hyperbole. That's fact. So I found it fascinating that a new book was released this week called Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. It's by noted historian Kenneth C. Davis, and he'll be our guest later in the hour to talk about the fact that in each of these cases, these five dictators all grew into power in legitimate ways. They weren't the results of some military coups or anything. It happened. How does the old phrase go? Like creeping fascism? And there are some warning signs dealing with what we're experiencing today. So I hope you'll stick around for that. But first, there's a lot of news to get to. So let's hit it. And we start with something that looks like a scene out of a really dystopian movie. But I guess that's how 2020 has gone so far. So why should today be any different? But this story is weird and scary. 13 people have been charged in an alleged domestic terrorism plot to overthrow the government and kidnap Michigan Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Some of the suspects associated with the militia group that calls themselves the Wolverine Watchmen were allegedly gathering intel on local law enforcement and training to attack the Michigan Capitol building. Whitmer on Thursday thanked FBI agents for foiling the plot and called out the president for, quote, giving comfort to those who spread fear and hatred and division. So let me say this loud and clear. Hatred, bigotry and violence have no place in the great state of Michigan. If you break the law or conspire to commit heinous acts of violence against anyone, we will find you. We will hold you accountable. 
and we will bring you to justice. Donald Trump and some of his supporters have long criticized Whitmer for her strict approach to coronavirus restrictions. There's been a nationwide increase in vigilante and militia activity in the wake of widespread protests and political uncertainty. And there are legitimate and growing concerns that militia groups will try to intimidate voters as the election nears. So on Thursday, the FBI charged six people with plotting to kidnap Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Seven others, members of that right-wing so-called militia group Wolverine Watchmen, face state charges of targeting police and threatening to instigate civil war. Seriously. Investigators believe some of the defendants participated in armed protests against Whitmer's coronavirus lockdown and planned to put her on trial for treason. This alleged domestic terrorist plot included plans to overthrow state governments that defendants believe are violating the U.S. Constitution. Donald Trump responded but not like any normal president would, by condemning the terrorists. Instead, Trump attacked Governor Whitmer. Typical. Frank Fagluzzi is a former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI. He weighed in on the arrests Thursday night on MSNBC. We're seeing a kind of instigator-in-chief tonight. He doesn't fully grasp the gravity of the impact his statements, his rhetoric, his lack of denouncing has on people who are on the fringe already, mentally unstable, and ready to act out on almost anything the person they think leads them is saying to them. Look, you go back to the El Paso Walmart shooter. He repeated the rhetoric from Trump. You look at the debate between Biden and Trump, where Trump said to the Proud Boys, stand back, stand by. That was received as a call to arms. Law enforcement is telling me that they are ready for a volatile and potentially violent period as we ramp up to the election and beyond. And this law and order president, the president who claims he's for law and order, is making the job of law enforcement harder and harder every day. And here's the problem. Law enforcement has to get it right every single time. The bad actors, they only have to get it right once. The good guys got it right today, but they need to get it right every single time. And the odds are stacked against them when the president of the United States is inciting this kind of terror in people, people who think there's an enemy, an evil enemy to overcome the president's behind that kind of thought process. Again, that's Frank Figluzzi, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI. In pandemic news, the United States is now averaging more than 45,000 new COVID-19 positive tests each day. That's more than double the numbers from June. And it's causing more concern for a potentially devastating winter. The CDC is now predicting deaths in the United States could reach 233,000 by the end of this month. And projections from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation show more than 2,900 Americans could die daily by January. While countries around the world are revving up their vaccine efforts, China just joined the World Health Organization's COVAX initiative, in which nations are working together to provide global access to effective COVID-19 vaccines. More than 75 high-income countries have committed money to the project, the United States, which severed its ties to the World Health Organization, and Russia are not among them. So Mitch McConnell finally gave one reason for why he has not participated in the on-again, off-again, on-again negotiations over another coronavirus relief package. Trump, the great dealmaker, hasn't participated, nor have any Republican congressional leaders from the House or Senate. But Mitch McConnell explained his absence in a stunning comment on Thursday. I haven't actually been to the White House since August the 6th because my impression was Their approach to how to handle this was different from mine and what I insisted that we do in the Senate, which is to wear a mask and practice social distancing. So who has Nancy Pelosi been negotiating with? Well, that would be Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. They reportedly resumed discussions on Thursday, reviving hopes of a possible stimulus deal after Trump abruptly called off negotiations until after the election just a couple of days ago. 
Pelosi and Mnuchin reportedly spoke for about 40 minutes on the prospect of a comprehensive bill, but apparently the big guy has changed his mind again. Friday afternoon, word came down that Donald Trump and his aides are offering Nancy Pelosi a $1.8 trillion coronavirus relief package. Huh? Yeah, the new figure was a jump from the White House's $1.6 trillion offer last week. But Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats are at $2.2 trillion. We'll see if they can come to terms on this. Quite a turnaround from Trump's proclamation that all negotiations are now over until after the election. Anyway, the wind blows. Now about those debates. On Thursday morning, after the Committee on Presidential Debates decided to make the second debate virtual due to precautions because the president is coronavirus positive, the man-child stomped his feet and said he wouldn't participate. I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating's all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. And then they cut you off whenever they want. Biden's campaign rejected a proposal from the Trump camp to push back the next two debates. Kate Benningfield, Biden's deputy campaign manager, said Trump's erratic behavior does not allow him to rewrite the calendar and pick new dates of his choosing. And although Trump is still obviously symptomatic, his coughing fits during an interview with Sean Hannity are proof of that. But his campaign said there was no medical reason why the next debate should not be held in person. They hold out as proof a statement from the White House physician, Sean Connolly, who already admitted to lying on behalf of the president about his health, said that Trump should be able to resume public engagements by Saturday, despite the fact that he is infected with the coronavirus. And where did he get it? Well, it appears that the September 26th event at the White House, where Trump officially nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, was indeed a super spreader event. At least 34 cases of COVID-19 are linked back to that event. Yet the White House declined the offer of assistance from the CDC to do any contact tracing. Let me repeat, the White House has said they will not do any contact tracing from that September 26th event. So, in an extraordinary move, the Washington, D.C. Department of Health is now appealing to all White House staff and anyone else who attended that Rose Garden event to seek medical advice and get tested. So, remember the name Elliot Broidy? He's the former Republican National Committee Deputy Finance Chair and one of Trump's top fundraisers in 2016. And he was somehow involved in the paying off of Trump's mistresses by Michael Cohen. Well, Elliot Broidy has now been charged with conspiring to violate the Foreign Agents Registration Act. The charges were filed last week, according to a federal court filing made public on Thursday. Broidy is accused of accepting $6 million from an unnamed foreign client and trying to get Trump administration officials to drop an investigation into Malaysian government corruption. Hmm. Broidy also allegedly attempted to get a Chinese citizen extradited from the United States. Neither of those efforts was successful. Broidy is expected to plead guilty. In April of 2018, he stepped down from his RNC position after it was reported he had an affair with a Playboy model and paid her $1.6 million to stay quiet about it. And finally, Donald Trump did not get the Nobel Peace Prize. It was awarded Friday morning to the UN World Food Program for its efforts to combat hunger, for its contribution to bettering conditions for peace in conflict-affected areas, and for acting as a driving force in efforts to prevent the use of hunger as a weapon of war and conflict. The organization is based in Rome. It's part of the UN network, and it plays a central role in helping impoverished people caught in or fleeing conflict and is currently addressing major crises in Yemen and Syria. David Beasley is the former governor of South Carolina, and he now acts as the executive director of the UN's World Food Program. To say he was surprised at the announcement Friday morning, well, is a little bit of an understatement. I mean, this is the first time in my life I've been speechless. I mean, mean, this is unbelievable. Talk about uh, the most exciting point in time in your life is the Nobel Peace Prize. And it's because 
of the WFP family. They're out there in the most difficult, complex places on, in the world, whether it's war, conflict, climate extremes, it doesn't matter. They're out there and they deserve this award. And, and wow, 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 wow. <laughs> I can't believe it. That made me smile. I hope it did you too. Plus, knowing that Donald Trump is probably seething made it all that much sweeter. All right. One last story that I want to get to, which is on Thursday, Nancy Pelosi, during her regular weekly press briefing, made a provocative statement. Well, I don't know what the prospects are when we hear people saying I'm I'm young and I'm a perfect specimen instead of addressing the fact that what 50,000 people were in fact, it, it reports to be infected yesterday, nearly a thousand people died. What are we talking about here? Tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow, come here tomorrow. Okay. We're going to be talking about the 25th Amendment, Ooh. but not to take attention away from the subject we have now. Okay. Well, tomorrow has come, and wait till you hear what Nancy Pelosi and Congressman Jamie Raskin did. We'll have that for you next. Stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler. Your guest host today, filling in for Brad Friedman on the broadcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the broadcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head The way he described it He said I'd be better dead than live I didn't listen to his jive I knew all along that he was all wrong And I knew that he thought I was crazy but I'm not You're listening to The Bradcast I'm Nicole Sandler filling in for Brad and Desi today They'll be back for the next episode Before we took a break I was telling you about a little tease that Nancy Pelosi put out to the press on Thursday during her regular weekly press conference. She mentioned Donald Trump and a very strange statement that he made the night before when he called in to Sean Hannity's Fox Not News television show. I'm back because I'm a perfect physical specimen and I'm extremely young. And uh, so I'm lucky in that way. Uh, What? Uh, You know, everything the man says is twisted. So that statement from Trump prompted this. Well, I don't know what the prospects are when we hear people saying I'm I'm young and I'm a perfect specimen instead of addressing the fact that what 50,000 people were infected, reported to be infected yesterday, nearly 1,000 people died. What are we talking about here? Tomorrow, by the way... Tomorrow, come here tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the 25th Amendment, but not to take attention away from the subject we have now. Okay, well, tomorrow has arrived. (laughs) Tomorrow, in this case, was Friday. And Friday morning at about 10.15, Nancy Pelosi and Congressman Jamie Raskin made their way into the House briefing room to unveil a plan for new legislation related to the 25th Amendment by creating an independent commission that would assess a president's ability to carry out the duties of the office. Boy, if ever something like that was needed. Hello. Congressman Jamie Raskin may be the biggest expert on the Constitution in Congress. Before he was elected, he was a constitutional law professor at American University Washington College of Law, where he co-founded and directed the LLM program on law and government and co-founded the Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Project, just in case you were wondering. Anyway, uh, Jamie Raskin spoke eloquently about why legislation like this is necessary. I thought it was worthy of devoting a few minutes to hearing his introduction and explanation of why this is necessary. In times of chaos, we must hold fast to our Constitution. The 25th Amendment is all about the stability of the presidency and the continuity of the office. It's a tool that was adopted by overwhelming bipartisan majorities in the House and in the Senate in 1965 and overwhelming bipartisan majorities of state legislatures, three quarters of whom passed it in 1967. The 25th Amendment is designed to guarantee 
the continuing peaceful transfer of power in our country. The principal authors of the amendment, like Senators Birch Bayh and Robert F. Kennedy and Congressman Emanuel Seller from New York, wanted to resolve basic questions about stability, continuity, and succession in the office of the presidency. So section one established that if the presidency is vacant, the vice president becomes the president. And believe it or not, that was ambiguous at the time. Section two establishes that if the vice presidency is vacant, the president nominates a vice president, and by concurrent majority vote of the House and Senate, that nominee becomes um, the vice president. Section three established a process for the temporary transfer of power by a president who is incapacitated uh, by transmitting to the president pro tem of the Senate and to the Speaker of the House a statement establishing a temporary disability. And this has happened multiple times with uh, various presidents, including President Reagan, who transferred powers to uh, Vice President Bush when he underwent colorectal surgery. Now, Section 4 deals with the problem of a president who becomes incapacitated but has made no provision to temporarily transfer powers, meaning, in the words of Senator Birch Bayh, that the president is unable either to make or to communicate his decisions as to his own competency to execute the powers and duties of his office. In that case, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet or the vice president and such other body that may be established by Congress may determine that there is a presidential incapacity and notify the president pro tem and the speaker of the house of that, uh, of that inability to conduct the powers and duties of office. In that case, the powers would be transferred to the vice president. Now, if you read section four, you will see that the president has the opportunity to object that he actually can conduct the powers despite what the vice president and uh, these bodies are saying. Uh, and ultimately, there would be a vote of the House and the Senate, and it requires two-thirds to side with the vice president. So it's it's made procedurally difficult to make sure that this is really only for the most extreme situations where you have a president who cannot fulfill the functions of the office. Now, it's never been necessary, but the authors of the 25th Amendment thought it essential in the nuclear age to have a safety valve option. Uh, and as they often said, we have 535 members of Congress, but we only have one president. In the age of COVID-19, which has killed more than 210,000 Americans and now ravaged the White House staff, the wisdom of the 25th Amendment is clear. What happens if a president, any president, ends up in a coma or on a ventilator and has made no provisions for the temporary transfer of power under Section 3? Who has the powers of the presidency at that point? Is it the chief of staff? Is it the vice president? Is it the secretary of state? This situation is what demands action under Section 4. I wish that Congress had set up this permanent body 50 years ago. Uh, it did not do it, but we do need to do this, certainly in the next Congress. The framers of the 25th Amendment knew that you could not always count on the cabinet to act, and so Congress has a role to play, and that role must be totally bicameral and totally bipartisan. And the legislation that I introduced today seeks to establish a 16-member commission that could act in the event of such an emergency and a, a chair, a 17th member, chosen by the 16 members themselves. Eight members are chosen, half by Republican leaders and half by Democratic leaders, from medical personnel, physicians, and other medical authorities. The other eight members are drawn from the ranks of former high-ranking executive branch officers, including former presidents, vice presidents, attorneys general, secretaries of defense, treasury and state, and surgeon general. So the commission is entirely bipartisan, and of course, under the 25th Amendment, it can act only in concert with the vice president, who is the key actor under the 25th Amendment. The Constitution is designed to give us the tools that we need to deal with the many crises of human affairs that can affect the continuity of democratic self-government. We are in the middle of a momentous election, and as the speaker said, the people will decide that. 
But when we get through this, the problem that we're talking about today is something serious that we have to face. And uh, I'm delighted to introduce this legislation and to answer any questions you may have. Congressman Jamie Raskin, he's one of our treasures. So they're not talking about enacting the 25th Amendment on Donald Trump now, just saying we need to protect against this kind of madness in the future. All right. There's still a lot to come. We've got an interview with the author of this new book called Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. But with all the heaviness, I like to lighten the load a little bit. And Randy Rainbow has a new song out. Not only that, he's joined by the one and only Patti Lapone. Let's give that a spin, shall we? Welcome back to the first presidential debate. Two queens stand before me. Gentlemen, before the time comes for you to lip sync for your lives, why don't we begin with some preliminary questions? Joe, how you doing? Well, first of all... Okay, I'm bored. Mr. President, here's a softball for you. Can I just get you to, if you don't mind, maybe condemn white supremacy real quick? Just... Maybe you didn't... He just pours gasoline in the fire. Constantly. Vice President if Biden, you look at the you polls, only, I'm only doing it and every Republican has done it a long time. Because girl. they saw what this you did. I'm having a panic attack. You and me both. Oh my God, Patty Lupone, what are you doing here? I'm busy. When gay men are in crisis, I just materialize. Patty, I'm getting nervous. What if this gets reelected? You gotta think positive, doll. Imagine how much better life would be if Trump got dumped. Shafted? William Howard Tafted. If Donald got fired, we could go back to life as we once knew it. Miserable and unfair, but at least without the daily threat of complete authoritarianism and apocalyptic destruction. Wouldn't that be nice? If Donald got fired according to plan, just think of the things I could do. I'd stop having nightmares about Kellyanne and finally sing songs about somebody new. If Donald got fired, if Donald got fired, would that be sublime? I'd put down my bottles and balls. I'd be back on Broadway and belting some time instead of cheap internet parody songs. Excuse me? Nothing? If Donald got fired President Trump did a phenomenal job Donald, quit running your scam There's nothing to tout You're no Abraham Donald, we're all in a jam Please get the hell out And take Lindsey Graham It would be so nice If he lost on election day I'd build him a new wall I'd pay for his new wall And I'd let Melania stay Really? Oh, Donald Please go far away If Donald got fired There wouldn't be any more wreck Less old complainy dick Tater's regime He will destroy this country. No more smug elites. No more goddamn tweets. Fake news. Fake news. Look, Daddy, I'm the worst president. Love me, love me. Donald, the truth might be tough. The polls all project. We've all had enough. Donald, don't stand there and scoff. With all due respect, please kindly... To do that. I hope we choose right. The future's so dark and unknown. There's nothing we cannot do if we do it together. But there's no deciding. I'm riding with Biden. I'm voting for Patty Lupone. Yes, Queen! Oh, Donald! I'm scared. Girl, just vote. (laughs) Randy Rainbow 
and the awesome Patty Lapone. We'll take a quick time out and come back on the other side with historian Kenneth C. Davis to discuss his new book, Strong Man, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. They say the next big thing is here, that the revolution's near. But to me it seems quite clear. I'm Nicole Sandler. Your guest host today is Brad and Desi are taking a long weekend. One side of Donald Trump that you can't help but notice is his obvious admiration of strongmen, you know, authoritarian figures and dictators. So when I was pitched on a new book that details the history behind, including the rise of five dictators, I jumped at it. There's that old adage attributed to writer and philosopher George Santayana, who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Or, as others interpret it, those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. So here's today's lesson. And what I've learned makes me even more nervous about this very volatile and frightening time in American history. Joining us today is Kenneth C. Davis. He's a New York Times bestselling author of America's Hidden History and Don't Know Much About History, which gave way to a whole series of Don't Know Much About books. The website is don'tknowmuchabout.com. Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for writing this book because the timing is perfect. The new book is Strong Man, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. Who's this book aimed at? Well, uh, it's aimed at everyone, actually. I I know that's an easy thing to say. Uh, A few years ago, after a whole lifetime of professional lifetime of writing for adults, um, I don't know much about history, by the way, it was published 30 years ago. It's wow. hard for me to believe that. Um, but I had always written for adults thinking that they had gone through school and hadn't learned the things they were supposed to learn. And it was meant as a refresher course. Over time, I found a lot of teachers were using my books in the classroom because they were much more accessible, approachable, interesting, entertaining for their students. And I started to go into uh, classrooms about 10 years ago via Skype largely uh, and had this really extraordinary learning experience of speaking to uh, young people across the country and around the world in some cases and finding them engaged interested, curious, articulate, completely opposite the typical media presentation of young people in this country. So I really decided that the way to make a difference, a real dent in this problem that we have with talking about history in this country was to write directly to them. Now, that being said, while it's a book that is ostensibly aimed at young adults, I don't write or speak differently to young people than I do to adults. I try and speak to everyone in the same voice, the way I'm speaking to you now, sure. conversationally, accessibly, and honestly, and a, a focus on accuracy and facts. And um, my experience with writing these books that are aimed at a slightly younger audience is that most adults read them and they don't know the difference. They're very happy, in fact, that they're, one, a little shorter, Mm -hmm. two, they're very illustrated, and three, the type is bigger. So um, uh, this is, you know, these are stories that are meant for everyone. And ideally, in my uh, view, this is something that becomes a, a, a kitchen table conversation that um, parents and adults, uh, generations can read my books together and sit down and talk about what they mean and how they factor into their lives. Right. Well, I, I asked the question because I noticed that, you know, the, the, according to the publisher, it's aimed at um, school age, uh, middle school and high school kids. Um, but it, it, you don't talk down to anyone. I mean, it's it's eminently readable. And as you mentioned, there are there are photographs and there are charts and there are graphs and it's it's very accessible. So you're bringing a very heavy 
tough subject to a very wide audience here. So this book, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy, outlines the rise of Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, and uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, why, why those five? Any reason in particular that you narrowed it down to them? Uh, certainly, let's take the, the first four first, because I think that those are kind of household names mm-hmm. for people in, in respect. Uh, we've all heard of Mussolini. We've all heard of Hitler and Stalin. Most of us have heard of Chairman Mao, Mao mm-hmm. Zedong. Um, and certainly in our time, uh, Saddam Hussein has been a, a character on the world stage and certainly a significant character uh, in American history. But I chose these five because I think in one way they all truly typify the type that I'm writing about, the authoritarian, the strongman, the dictator, all of them use very, very similar techniques, first of all, to come into power and then to accumulate and uh, uh, concentrate their power. So they're, uh, and, and certainly in the annals of 20th century history, there could have been a number of other ruthless dictators who uh, I might have included. But I wanted to, first of all, address this kind of idea of household names about whom many people don't really know who they are, what they did, how they came to power. And I think that their story is so instructive for our time. Um, One other connection between Saddam and uh, and the earlier ones is that Saddam was actually known as the Stalin on the Tigris. Um, He studied Stalin. Uh, He had his secret police sent to East Germany at one point to learn Stalinist techniques. So there are threads, certainly, that connect all of these men. Uh, And we have to understand uh, how quickly not all of them came to power in democracies. Some certainly did. How quickly rights, freedoms, privileges the things that we have come to take for granted as Americans can disappear. It does not die in darkness. Sometimes it dies in broad daylight mm-hmm. while thousands cheer. You know, perfect example. And, and, and it's, it's, it's perfect timing as well that you tell these stories because many of us here in the United States are concerned about the direction Donald Trump is taking this country and who his um, idols for lack of a better term, are the the world leaders that he tends to want to associate with are of the strongman variety. It's Vladimir Putin. It's uh, Erdogan of Turkey. It's Duterte of the Philippines. It's it's seemingly the worst of the worst while he basically blows off our allies. (laughs) Um, and, And it makes you wonder uh, what his motivation is. And and so you look at the rise of some. So just for a moment, if you would, give us the history of Adolf Hitler. He didn't rise to power by uh, a military coup or anything. He ran for the, uh, the presidency, I guess, and he was appointed chancellor. He came up through legitimate means, right? That's absolutely correct. Uh, the, the opening chapter of the book uh, presents Hitler already in power uh, at this moment when the, the uh, German parliament burns to the ground, essentially, and uh, he uses that moment to take the power he's been given constitutionally and expand it exponentially overnight. Um, so how does he come to power? Exactly as you said, Hitler and Mussolini mm. were both creations of democratic constitutional uh, uh, republics. And it's important to understand that. We see them very often in history in military garb. Uh, They adopted that as their image because these men tend to be very militaristic. But both men were put into power in democracies. Mussolini first, and that's why I tell his story first, Mm -hmm. and it's influential to Hitler. And then Hitler, of course, later on. Uh, Hitler was uh, the leader of the Nazi party, a party within uh, a a large number of parties in Germany at the time. Uh, There's chaos uh, in the government because nobody can put together a cohesive government. Germany is having extreme uh, economic problems because of uh, conditions in the country after World War I, a very significant 
significant event in all of these stories, by the way. And uh, he runs for president, finishes second uh, to uh, to Paul Hindenburg, a World War One hero in Germany. Mm-hmm. And as the country is in complete chaos, they turn to Hitler thinking that they will be able to control this rather useful idiot. Um, and that's a very dangerous uh, uh, estimation that people have made. Uh, so Hitler is made, even though he's not elected himself, he is made the prime minister or chancellor of Germany. He moves very quickly, as I mentioned, in the, with the burning of the Reichstag uh, to secure those powers he quickly over, uh, overturns many constitutional protections, bans other political parties, bans the free press, starts to arrest and jail his opponents. And even as I say that to you right now, uh, to, to focus on the, this moment in our history, just today again, we have the president calling for the investigation, the jailing of his predecessor and his political opponent. This is strongman techniques. Now, I want to be very clear that I do not mention the current president at all no, in you this don't, book. Right? It's a book of history. But I do think that the lessons and the strongman's playbook that I outline are very important for us to realize, understand, and accept. And yes, this president seems to be excessively fond of these men because what do they all really want? They don't have an ideology necessarily, some more so than others. They want power. The point of power is power. The point of torture is torture, as George Orwell wrote. The point of a dictatorship is being dictator. And I think that it's that, uh, that quest for unlimited personal power that ties all of these men together and makes them such a person appealing to a man like the president. Uh, Our guest is Kenneth C. Davis. His brand new book just out this week is called Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. And you just mentioned the strongman's playbook, and it's in the in the final chapter, which you call Never Again, question mark. Um, And it reminded me of uh, something else that I've dealt with a lot over the last especially three and a half years four years, um, which is uh, there, there are a number of essays that have been written about um, fascism and the signs of fascism. And this reminds me an awful lot of that. What, you know, th- there seems to be some confusion. I want to get into this playbook in a second, but I want to ask you um, as a historian um, about fascism. We have a, a controversy, which is astounding to me right now in this nation, where um, there's a Uh, a a very loose ideology, it's not an organization, called Antifa. It's basically people who are dedicated to fighting fascism. Um, I'm Antifa, I'm anti-fascist. Yet we have a president who's saying Antifa is is fascism. Antifa are terrorists. Um, While he defends the actions of white supremacy groups who go around committing acts of fascism. Um, I call it opposite world. Do you, what is your take on this disconnect? Uh, yes, and of course, Orwell laid this all out for us in yeah, 1984 with Newspeak and turning mm-hmm. reality on its head and making words the opposite of what they mean, and yes. two plus two is five. Um, my father, uh, uh, my late father, um, was Antifa. It was called joining the U.S. Army after <laughs> Pearl Harbor. Absolutely. And, and he went to North Africa and Italy and uh, was in the, you know, the anti-fascist army that uh, was created uh, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Um, so it's, it's astonishing to me that we uh, are even having a, a, a debate about this in some respects, because I grew up believing that, you know, that was what we uh, what we were taught as children. And I certainly grew up in the generation where we had to duck and cover under the yeah. uh, under the desks because the other great bugaboo of the, of the time after World War II was communism. So we had these two great isms that were really bad things. And uh, uh, that's the 
background out of which I write my books and understand history and and try and bring the past to the present. Uh, Let me just briefly talk about fascism because it is unfortunately a word that gets thrown around a lot. And we have in this book, Strongman, the man who really uses it uh, as a label for what he's doing. Mussolini, he comes, uh, he creates a, uh, a political party in the aftermath of World War One. Again, a very significant event in, in all of these histories. Um, and he calls it uh, the, uh, the fascist party. Uh, I won't go into the Italian version. I, I'm trying to learn Italian, <laughs> but I won't, I won't, I won't trouble you with that right now. Okay. What is what is the fascist that Mussolini is referring to? It was a symbol of power in the Roman Republic. And Mussolini, like many of these leaders, was reaching back for symbols of a great past. He was saying, our country was once great. We had a great civilization. We are going to restore that great civilization. So he chooses this symbol, which is essentially a a bundle of rods bound together with an ax head in the center. It was a symbol of power and authority that a a man actually carried around in the Roman Republic and later on under, under Caesar. So it had real resonance in Italy. It meant something. And it's no accident, if you go to Milan, there's a train station there, the central station in Milan, built by Mussolini. And there on the the exterior, on the facade, is the fascis. Wow. um, uh, Along with symbols of ancient Rome, uh, horses and uh, giant uh, powerful figures, he was trying to recall this almost mythical past of of a Roman glory. He uses the symbol of the fascis. By the way, it's not unknown in America, as I point out in the book. Uh, you can see the fascis in the uh, Congress. It's in the House of Representatives on the wall. Uh, when you see uh, Nancy Pelosi standing there, there are fascis behind her. Wow. There are fascis on the seat that Abraham Lincoln sits on in the Lincoln Memorial. There's a fascist under George Washington at Federal Hall. This was seen as a a 19th century symbol of leadership, authority, uh, order, and and rule. Um, Then converted by uh, Mussolini into a very different meaning of fascism. So when people say to me, well, what, what is fascism? Fascism was not an ideology in the same sense uh, that other socialism, communism, uh, democratic capitalism, they are ideologies that we can think about and explain. Fascism existed, as I was saying before, for the point of power. Mussolini's only interest was really power. Did he do things to, uh, to change his country? Absolutely. Did he have a program to change his country? Absolutely. But it was a program that was essentially designed to, uh, to coalesce and create more power for him and his party. That was the essence of his fascism. Right. And and in reading what you lay out as the strongman's playbook, it seems to echo these characteristics of fascism. So you talk about uh, the blueprint uh, that go into the making of a dictatorship. Um, extreme nationalism that calls for restoring a country's past glory or greatness, (laughs) Uh, placing blame on a single group, usually an ethnic or religious minority or foreign threat, warning of an emergency, often non-existent, or responding to severe economic distress that threatens the nation, calls for a law and order and eliminating corruption. All of these are hallmarks of Donald Trump's presidency. Yes, and I don't want to call him a fascist, and I don't want to call him Mussolini or Hitler, but right. these are exactly the things that these men do. So that's that's why it is the playbook, and it's been a very effective playbook throughout history to extraordinary ruthlessness and murderousness, of course. These men all took their countries down a deadly and dangerous path, uh, usually, again, in pursuit of their personal aggrandizement of power, Mm -hmm. their own egos, they all elevate themselves into a cult of personality. That's kind of those four things you just singled out are the things that kind of bring them to power. And then they have a playbook that 
that concentrates that power. And you want to talk about what's in there? Because these are, I mean, they're, we recognize, I recognize them immediately. Well, attacking the courts. Yep. Uh, we mentioned uh, attacking a, a minority group or a mm-hmm. foreign group or an outside group or a religious group. So, you know, has this president done these things? Absolutely. I just want to be careful, and I'm not, I'm not saying this makes him right. a fascist. No, you're this not, but I am. Actually, I am, and I've been sing, saying this and putting up the warning flags forever. And, I, I mean, you can't help but read, you know, once in a position of power, the strong man does some or all of the following. And you talk about moving to control the courts, legislator and elections. Hello, legislature and elections. It heightens an emergency that may not exist. Uh, creates a crisis that may demand military intervention, takes control of the media, increases the use of propaganda, jails or threatens opponents, including journalists, attacks artists, intellectuals, and other free thinkers, sets out to control the education system, attempts to create a young generation of devoted followers, doles out economic favors to supporters and allies, oh boy, creates a larger-than-life cult of personality, either threatens or restricts religious freedoms or bends religion to the regime's agenda. I could make a case for every one of those. Uh, I, I think yes, in, in many cases, and that's what these men were able to do in, their, in, in all of the five cases I present here. There was uh, uh, insufficient pushback or no pushback or the pushback was, was crushed. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, you know, the pushback uh, hasn't been complete. Look, America has never fallen prey to a strong man. We have this uh, this term that we use, American exceptionalism. To me, what is exceptional about America is that in our greatest crises, we didn't have a strong man. In the American Civil War, we got Abraham Lincoln. Right. Right. Uh, in the Great Depression and the lead up to World War II, we got Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, both of them are men who made mistakes, had flaws. They were not perfect, but they were the opposite of strongman. And they eventually moved to expand freedoms and rights and privileges and democracy, both at home and around the world, not restricted. So that's what makes American ex- uh, uh, America exceptional in my mind to a degree. This was a, a, a question at the heart of the conversations, the debates at the Constitutional Convention. And that's why I include a chapter explaining how democracy grew from ancient Athens through the Roman Republic and right up to the point of the Constitutional Convention. These men had two worries, and they were at far ends of the extreme. One is that democracy is dangerous. It's one step away from mob rule. We can't let all these people who, you know, dirty, unwashed, uneducated, illiterate people make decisions for the country. On the other hand, they were really afraid that giving power to a president, uh, a chief executive, a commander in chief, giving him control over the army was also a very dangerous thing. So at every step along the way, they created this system of checks and balances. And for most of our history, those checks and balances have held. Right now, those checks and balances are probably under greater stress than they've ever been in our history, except for the Civil War, perhaps. And so that's why I think that this really is a cautionary tale for our time. Most definitely. And, and I'm glad that you sort of wrap it up by saying that, look, uh, you say Americans are fortunate to still enjoy the freedom of expression and protest. Yeah, we're teetering on that one. But as the five stories in this book prove... The guardrails built to protect those rights are removable. A free press can be silenced. Courts can be tilted in favor of one ideology. The powerful can buy access that the average cannot afford. Freedom to protest can be restrained. Laws can be revised or rewritten to take away rights. Once they're gone, such rights are difficult to resuscitate. And then you say that... um, we're left with hard questions. And right now, Americans really need to be asking these questions. What, what should we be doing now? What, what should we be asking ourselves? 
You know, uh, Nicole, it's it really is the question of the book, and and uh, there are no easy answers. I'll say mm. that first. Um, I grew up fairly optimistic. You know, yes, there I knew. I grew up in the, the 1960s. I saw uh, uh, racial uh, unrest in, in my hometown around the country in 1967 and 68. We I lived through that period, uh, becoming aware politically, I suppose, when I was a teenager in 1968, seeing the Vietnam War, seeing the uh, the, uh, the convention, the riots at the convention, seeing two of the most important leaders of my lifetime, Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, shot down within weeks of each other, uh, and thinking that this is terrible, yet we did move on from there. We did move on. Four years later, I could vote uh, because they changed the Constitution Constitution to allow uh, 18-year-olds to vote in 1972, which I did, and I voted every year since, and that's where I start. Um, we have the power to affect things by our vote, but voting is only one part of it, not a small part, but only one part. We have a voice, and throughout American history, it's people who have a voice, but maybe don't have a voice, who have changed history, not from the top down, but the bottom up. Abolition, mm -hmm. suffrage, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, most progressive uh, changes in this country came from the bottom up, often coming from people who had no vote, but they had a voice and they took to the streets and they changed the country. The vast majority of changes to the Constitution as it relates to voting have been to open up democracy, not restrict it. African-American men getting the vote, women getting the vote 100 years ago, 18-year-olds like me opening up uh, Washington, D.C. to have a, a voice in the election, which didn't happen until the 1960s. Well, it's still not the fully of, there, but yeah, point taken. And still not <laughs> fully there. The end of uh, the poll taxes, mm -hmm. which are making a comeback. Uh, the vote, the election of the Senate by uh, direct vote, not by state legislature. So every change to the Constitution has been to open up democracy. And I think that's an important uh, point in this. But again, people who don't have a vote have a voice. The late great John Lewis was 18 years old and black. For those two reasons, he couldn't vote, but he was still out there marching. And he said, in one of his, uh, in the moving last uh, piece he wrote in the New York Times that was published after his death, democracy uh, is an act. Democracy is, you know, we, it's a verb. We have to take part in this. Mm. If we take it for granted, if we are complacent about it, it will disappear and it, it, it does not disappear in darkness. I admire the Washington Post, but I think they're wrong. This history shows that it often dies in broad daylight, decapitated while thousands of people cheer. And that's an important part of the history that I'm trying to tell as well. Uh, that's an amazing line. It often grows. Say that again. It, it, it's decapitated. It's decapitated in broad daylight while thousands cheer. Um, you know, look at those clips of the adoring faces at Nuremberg or the, the faces underneath that balcony gazing up at, at Mussolini as he makes these ranting speeches. Uh, they, these men were able to capture uh, the loyalty, the passion of their, their people because they promised them that they, he would make their countries great again. It's a frightening prospect. The book is enlightening, though. It's called Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy by Kenneth C. Davis. It is newly out and uh, it's an easy read and really important information. And it asks the important questions that we should all be posing right now, because we're at a really um, a turning point in American history. We could easily go one way or the other. I guess it's all up to us. Kenneth Davis, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. The book is great. I appreciate your time. It was a pleasure for me as well. If they want to learn more about the book, don'tknowmuch.com is the website. It is also available on audio. And uh, I love to talk about this stuff, as you can tell. So anytime you'd like to have me back, feel free. I will definitely uh, take you up on that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Bradcast. Brad and Desi will be back in time for the next episode. 
In the meantime, I'm Nicole Sandler, inviting you to check out my show at NicoleSandler.com anytime. I'll leave you for today with my plea to vote and Brad's show-ending words wishing us and the rest of the world good luck. We need it. Oh,